Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Tennis One podcast. Madison Golden alongside Patrick Kuehl, and Patrick is in Dallas, right, right, Patrick? Yeah, that's right. Dallas Open, uh, third or fourth day here, I think. So, yeah, last night was a late one, thanks to Jack Sock. So, Jack, thanks for extending that as long as possible and taking your time between points. We really appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) No, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, we're down here as the official app, Tennis One, so just covering it for our, our app and social and just trying to promote the event as much as possible. So, yeah, it's, it's been good. It's been good. I got this hat yesterday. This is, I'm sorry if people can't see it, but this is like one of the cooler <laughs> tennis tournament hats. I, oh, I, I can actually rock it, but it just looked so cool <laughs> that I, I had to pull the trigger. So, yeah. I yeah. like it. It's a good color. <laughs> Classic. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Let's introduce our guest. So we have Mike Cation here joining us. You can't see him, obviously, but he's here. Mike, I, I got a whole bio here on you, but mm-hmm. I, first, I first just want to start with this <laughs> because I, I was listening to the newest episode of your podcast this morning. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you're a freezer thin mint guy because oh, man. same. Patrick, so so you got to also <laughs> throw in here with the, the thin mints. <laughs> I'm I'm gluten intolerant, like the real yeah. kind, not, not the fake kind, right? So yeah. it has been almost 20 years since I last have had a thin mint. <laughs> and it's still like it's burned into my brain how good it tastes. And the fact that my daughter, bless her heart, is selling them and they're just boxes upon boxes of thin mints in my house and I can't eat them without getting incredibly sick is absolutely miserable. <laughs> That's that's tough. I uh god, I can't I can't imagine not being able to eat those things because yeah, I, I know like you can go through like multiple sleeves. Oh, of course. Two. So yeah, Patrick, so let me just easy. say as somebody who's older, uh do it while you can. Uh, because if you're <laughs> if you do it now, it just doesn't come off. Oh man. Chuck, I'll tell you this, Chuck, you'll take down a couple of sleeves of those things. That's probably where yeah. I got them from. But <laughs> Madison, what do you what do you favorite? You have a favorite uh, Girl Scout cookie? Yeah, so I was a big sugar cookie fan growing up. So just like their classic shortbread, I loved. I also love Samoas. I like the coconut and caramel. You can't go wrong with those. And they used to have those powdered sugar lemon ones. Do they still have those, Mike? No, they don't know. I tell you what, Madison, I'll just send you an order form. You can, you tell me what Please. you Please. Okay. Right. I will. I, I need a, I need a, a fix here. So we need to stockpile, please. <laughs> and then we'll put them in the freezer and they're good. Exactly. For, oh, they they're can so last. good. Oh, uh, yes. Please, please send us a form. <laughs> so good. Anybody that needs Girl Scout cookies, Mike's daughter selling them. Yeah. That's the gym on, uh, on Mike C. Tennis social media. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We'll put his at sign on social so you can DM him. <laughs> yeah, it, unfortunately, like it's it's just for a camping trip uh, for my daughter for the summer. But, you know, maybe they can do what what is it called? Glamping. They can just do some glamping instead of camping. <laughs> instead of real camping. That sounds nice. <laughs> I would prefer thing. glamping, I think. Same, same. It's, it's way too dirty and smelly and just like <laughs> the ground is uneven in your tent. I mean, you need like to do it in a proper setting, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, let me let me get to some of these bullets here. It's a long list. Mike, just correct me if any of this is is wrong. But I, okay, we did we did some research, right? Okay, so <laughs> some, of it, some of it we knew as well. So, uh, first of all, you're from Champaign, right? I am. Yeah. yeah. What high school did you go to? I went to Urbana. Uh, your father coached against me um, when I played high school tennis. So successfully yeah, we, or unsuccessfully? Uh, that it's you're talking about like the 1960s here so like how i mean i can't remember back that far 1960s my dad is like an eight-year-old <laughs> oh man that's funny well yeah so you're from champagne yeah you, you played high school tennis but mm-hmm. i read that you had to you had to stop because of a shoulder issue that's correct yeah i blew out my shoulder senior year it was actually the second time I'd thrown out my shoulder first was a baseball injury which actually pushed me into tennis believe it or not Oh um, and then state tournament, um, shoulder literally came out of its socket, uh, as I was playing my second match of the state tournament, wow. we won that, we won that match. I want to make sure I point out that that's still one of my sources of pride. Uh, we lost the next two matches, uh, and I was incredibly high on painkillers for both of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was it for me in terms of playing, uh, just, I was going to walk on and play at, um, Northern Illinois university, but then it just kind of 
shut mm-hmm. it down because it just wasn't it wasn't worth it at that stage. Mm-hmm. Well, instead, you went to you went to University of Illinois. You studied Correct. podcast. Yes. You, I believe in an interview, you said that you want, you've always wanted, or you always had wanted to do broadcasting. How did you want to get into it? Was there like a specific, you know, broadcaster that you saw? No. So, I mean, so, um, when, when I was say six, seven, eight years of age, um, most, most kids at that time, you know, you'd get up before school, you'd watch, uh, Bozo the Clown, (laughs) Uh, on WGN in, uh, from Chicago, or you would watch cartoons, right? Um, I was the weird kid who was watching the 6.30 a.m. Sports Center every single morning at the age of six and seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just, I was just transfixed by it. And the ability to tell stories and entertain even from that age was much more enjoyable and interesting to me than cartoons or anything like that. So I was just transfixed by Sports Center every single day, watched Sports Center probably, you know, pretty much like 98% of the days from the age of six to about 25. Um, and yeah, when when um, my tennis love started, and uh, frankly, it started because of John McEnroe, seeing John McEnroe highlights on Sports Center and how crazy that guy was and breaking <laughs> things and screaming at people. Um, I, I loved the sport. Um, and that was when I turned, you know, 13, 14, and I thought about what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a tennis broadcaster and it took me a lot longer. Um, the path was hard, but that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I'm incredibly lucky that I get to do it for a living now. Well, Craig Tiley hired you as a PA announcer in uh, 2001, right? Craig Tiley, for those of you that don't know, was the men's tennis coach at University of Illinois. And I believe that the tennis director, right? Correct. Was that famous 32-0 2003 season with Phil Stoll, Rajiv Ram, all those guys. I still have that poster. Uh, Yeah. You know, my parents haven't changed my childhood bedroom. (laughs) And uh, so I got got that still (laughs) hanging up there. I mean, Craig is Craig is a very influential person, obviously now um, the head of Tennis Australia, the tournament director for the Australian Open. Um, Yeah, when I was when I was 16, I mean, he was not getting paid much as the head coach at the University of Illinois. So I've I've told this story before, but I mean, he was giving lessons, um, private lessons and also group lessons for kids. Um, So Craig Tiley was teaching me how to hit a forehand with extra topspin. And I, I cracked my head because I was trying to do kind of like that buggy whip that Rafa does. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, Craig was very influential um, in, in my life. I was working radio back in 2001 um, in Champaign uh, as my first uh, real job out of college. And he, he said, Hey, listen, we need a, a public address announcer. Are you interested? Um, and of course I, you know, I had no, I'd never done any, uh, public speaking like that before, but I was happy to do it for Craig. Um, and he also had me start to do some like unofficial media relations stuff. So, um, you know, obviously a university, they will have PR people who help their teams uh, try to get, you know, just on in the newspaper, on TV, on radio. Um, and he asked me to kind of do things unofficially uh, so that they would get a little bit more press. He asked me to start doing some interviews with his players when recruits signed, he asked me to do like their first interview, like a get to know you interview. Um, and yeah, Craig was always really good about um, that idea of family um, with, within college athletics, especially just making sure that, you know, you, you surround yourself with the best people and that leads to success, right? I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's a true one. Um, and that's, that's one of the things I learned during that time frame. Um, I was just working in early morning radio. So like I was one of those wacky, I was the wacky news and sports guy on a top 40 station, <laughs> which I loved. It was great. Um, I do too. I love that. It was, it, it was so much fun, um, except for the fact that you're waking up at three in the morning. But other than that, it's like, it's a, it's a really fun job. But, you know, this, it gave me an outlet to do kind of some of the things that I really wanted to do as a kid, working with athletics, tennis um, specifically, and I'm forever indebted to Craig and what those relationships meant. I mean, I'm still close with, you know, you mentioned Amir Delic and um, who's down in Austin, Texas, doing, sadly for me, too much pickleball stuff. Um, uh, Rajiv Ram, obviously, is a top <laughs> top five player in the world still to this day. Um, but yeah, I have relationships with all those guys um, and that that bond with Illinois tennis specifically is still there today. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, you know, in addition to doing your podcast, the Behind the Racket podcast with Noah Rubin, which I think you've been doing, you've been podcasting since at least 2017, because that's yes. how far back it goes. On yeah. Spotify, and you had the coffee cast and all that. Correct. In addition to podcasting, and the and the speaking of Illinois, the relationship still going strong. You you did the Australian Open this year, commentating. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, how was that? It, it was a lot of fun. That was, it's um, the fifth year I've gotten to do that. Um, oh first, first in three years. So I did 2017 through 2020. Um, but then obviously with COVID, um, I am a single parent. Um, I co-parent very well. Um, and, you know, we live about a block away from each other, but my daughter is incredibly important to me. Um, so obviously the last couple of years I was offered the opportunity to go back, but with all of the COVID restrictions they had in Australia, obviously it just didn't make sense to go quarantine, et cetera. Um, so it was great to be back in Melbourne this year. Um, those trips are special. Um, uh, the U S open as well. I've done since 2017. Um, and I, listen, I, my, my passion, um, I'll, I'll just along with just being a storyteller, if you will, um, for tennis is is to talk about the stories of those players who don't necessarily get all the publicity that Rafa and Novak and Serena and um, and the Iga get. Um, so if it, it happened to be a really special year because of the fact that there is this big push by young American men um, and obviously being a, a, the challenger broadcaster here in the States, um, I was positioned well to be there at that time and able to tell some of those stories. I mean, JJ Wolf, Ben Shelton, Michael Moe all had these big runs, deep runs, right? Um, so the fact that I happened to be there and it coincided with this big push from young American men was really special to, to watch, getting to see um, all of the work that they've put in kind of behind the scenes at the challenger level where you know, there's not that big spotlight. It's so cool to see them have that moment in the sun. And I was so happy to be there at the same time. Well, well, you did such a great job. I mean, it was so fun to watch you. You're you're truly one of the best. Patrick and I talked about that. I wanted to ask you, you know, as a fellow broadcaster myself, for those who who don't know how much prep actually goes into all of this, what does a typical day of prep look like for you, either at the AO or at one of your challenger events that you commentate on as well? Yeah, it's those are those are actually very, very different, Madison. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> very. Uh, with it, with a challenger day, um, so Monday through Thursday of a challenger week, that means six to seven matches per day. Um, so I try to spend twenty to thirty minutes on each match, and what that what that looks like for me, um, I have I have little Microsoft Word documents for pretty much every player. Um, which is just a basic bio of, you know, where they're from, age, ranking currently, um, some notes on how they play, recent results. Like I will go through Tennis Abstract and write down their previous six tournaments. Um, uh, and then, you know, the head-to-head, -head, um, any recent notes that I need to be aware of. And I try to spend like 10 minutes on each player as best I can. I, obviously, I have to be conscious of you know, making sure I sleep, making sure I get the you know, amount of food because you're broadcasting, you know, a short day is eight hours straight um, of commentary. A, a long day is somewhere towards 12 or 14. So conscious of making sure body is taken care of, number one. But then, yeah, 10 to 10 to 10 minutes per player is kind of my rule of just making sure I get those those basic rights. Um, right. Then, you know, when, once you're in a match, kind of tennis takes over and you kind of know the sport and kind of know a little bit about each player, how they play, and you're able to just kind of analyze it. Um, the prep on a Grand Slam match for me is different. So I actually I actually happen to have, um, because I was lucky enough to do the Madison Sloan um, EXO um, for, for you guys on Tennis One a couple of days ago. So I actually have my, uh, I, I don't know if you can see it, Madison, and I know our viewers can't, but this is this is kind of what I do. I, I take one of these manila folders um, and I just basically, I actually write everything down. The lighting mm -hmm. is terrible in here, but I, <laughs> I write everything down. I have like a, um, uh, just kind of a, I don't know, format of how I like to have everything in terms of, you know, all of the basic information, again, ranking, you know, just the basic stuff you can't mess up, uh, pronunciation, right. hometown, yeah. ranking, the recent things. results. Yeah. The, <laughs> like the stuff that is fact upon fact, right? Like get all of that. So it's in front of you. So you don't mess that up somewhere along the way. 
um, then at a, at a Grand Slam, I want to go through and do a Google News search, and I want to read a couple of articles about Madison Keys, for example, um, so that I am up to date on what she might have said quotes wise. Um, so I have those little anecdotes just uh, a little bit more fresh in my man my mind. At a Grand Slam, you're doing one or two matches. So you have a little bit of extra time to prepare for a singular match. And that means, you know, the, I, th I think for, I, I don't want to sound judgmental here, but the, the good <laughs> broadcasters are going to put in the time. They're going to use mm -hmm. that extra time to say, OK, what I, I can go back and look at um, their press conferences and read read the transcripts of their press conferences from from this week. I can go back and maybe watch some highlights from their last match and see what what they were doing well in that particular match, go through the stats, see what they did. Um, so, so those days um, for me are a little bit more fun because of the fact that you get to do that research. I don't know about you, Madison, but I like, I love the prep. I love the work. Me too. Um, yes. So when you actually have that time to really get into it and dig deep and um, find a way that works so that you're able to kind of take all of that information and condense it, I think that's like, for me, that's the nerd in me coming through is just like, I want to, I want to take as much as I can. Um, and then the question, Madison, is, as you know, is just like, okay, how do I take all of that information and use it properly? Um, and I think that's always still a work in progress for me, but I mean, that's, that's the joy of what we do. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I mean, <clears throat> even seeing just what you're able to do in commentary. And I feel like you do it so well of bringing us the stories that you don't know about these players. And that's what makes you so good. So Patrick and I were talking about how oh, fun it was nice to you. watch you. you. And we were so excited to have you uh, as, as you know, Patrick's down in Dallas do the uh, Sloan Stevens and Maddie Keys match. That was great. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's really important um, because of the fact that, yeah, these, the challenger players specifically, um, players who are lower ranked, who are not top 20, who not top 30, those stories don't get out very much. Um, like Michael Moe's story, what he has dealt with over the last couple of years, injuries wise, you know, his parents, uh, you know, the fact that he's a man of the world and people don't know that just got engaged and those stories are not out there. So um, yeah, it's, it's an honor to get to tell those stories and it's an honor even more so to be trusted with some of those details. I mean, I, I'm very lucky at a challenger level um, and, and you guys know what it's like um, traveling around. I mean, Madison, you and I, you, you were, let's see, you guys were with me in the NCAAs. I know that yes. obviously, Yep. you know, at some of those smaller events, right? Like you are in the same hotel, you are in the same transport, right? Like it's a little different at these smaller events than it is at, you know, even Dallas where Patrick is right now, like you are intimate with these people. Like you are, you're just riding to the courts and you are right behind two players and you're able to overhear some conversations. Sometimes those people, you'll be at breakfast and you happen to be stuck at a table next to them. So you'll have these conversations. <laughs> so to be, to be trusted enough with those, those conversations with um, these players who are just incredible in themselves, I, I, it is such an honor to be able to kind of use that and make them the stars that they actually are. Well, you'll be happy to know that I've been in the elevator multiple times to Michael Mo down here in Dallas. So yeah. Very <laughs> intimate down at the 250s as well. But that's true. Just talking about the challengers. I mean, you've been yeah. doing that. You've been the sole commentator since 2013. And, you know, like you said, when you're prepping for a Madison Keys match, you can find the transcripts of past yeah. press conference. There's so much out there. What's you know, how do you find these stories about the, the challenger players? Is it, frankly, is it a lot of just talking to them? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really what it is. I mean, there, have, I, I would be lying if I said there were matches where I, you know, I, that I'm prepped for every single match because there are some matches where I will go in and I have an empty sheet in front of me. I have a name and I don't even know how to properly pronounce it five minutes before the match. I mean, that, that happens on a, a, a regular basis. Um, the 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 impact though is like for for a lot of those challenger level players especially you know who have come up from the futures that's their first time being on a quote unquote televised court so you want to make sure you put on a good show i think um i think more and more over the last couple of years you guys the the challenger level has been getting getting the recognition that it deserves you are seeing more and more of these players who are able to make that jump and then sustain that level at at the atp or wta level you know being 
maybe not necessarily a top 20 player, but a top 50 or 60 player. Um, those are really fantastic careers. Like people, you know, we put so much focus in the media on top 10 players, grand slam titles, and totally understandable, right? That's what drives the sport. A player who is 50 in the world for seven or eight years, they're going to be set for life. Their kids are going to be set for life. That right. is an enormous success. Um, and yeah, it's, it's hard to, to, to adequately tell a story of somebody who's 150 in the world, right? It's hard to do that. You have to spend the time and get to know these people. Um, if I have a tournament, you know, Tiburon is one of my favorite tournaments. Uh, it's in Northern California, across the bay from uh, San Francisco. You go literally right over the Golden Gate Bridge to get to Tiburon. But what it's one of my favorites, A, because of the scenery there, Redwoods. You've got San Francisco Bay. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, but it's also one of my favorites because there are only four matches each each day. So that means I actually get to spend some time chatting with players and like getting to know them during that week because we have the we're in the same hotel and we're uh, there's a nice little lounge that I'm allowed to sit in and just kind of watch TV and watch tennis with some of these players. I love that because, again, it gives me some depth, um, gives me some quality, uh, quality time with these players, because that's that's what makes for a good broadcast at, at the lower levels. Um, I know, you know, in a in a week I'm going to be doing ITA national team indoors um, with um, Cracked Rackets and Alex Gruskin. And, and I know you guys know Alex and uh, that, that whole team pretty well. Like the, the fact that you're in, engaged in these smaller stories where you get to talk to the coaches more and more, get to bring on these players um, and, and have conversations with them. Those are, that's what's crucial about broadcasting at a lower level, spending the time, letting them be the one to tell the story if they can, if they can't, then you do it for them in a in a, a good, respectful way. That's that's the key, I think, to making it interesting at that level. Well, Mike, I know that you've said in the past the ATP Challenger Tour doesn't get the credit it deserves. And right. you know, my dad runs a futures tournament and has yeah. done it for 24 years. And just seeing those guys, you know, they're such good tennis players and a lot of them living out of their cars. You know, I mean, that's yeah. the reality of, of pro tennis. Where do you think... I know that you would love to see the ATV Challenger Tour marketed more. Sure. But where where is the balance from keeping it from, I guess, becoming the circus that that the regular ATV Tour is, you know, because it's you do love the intimate part of the Challenger Tour. So where's the where's the level? It's a great question. Um, because yeah, I think I think actually, you know, the the ATP and um ATP Challenger Tour, they actually put out some new um, financial terms um, that they announced last year that are being put in place this year. There are going to be some new, uh, newly televised events this year as well. Um, because yeah, it's, it's not realistic, frankly, to just say, you know, it should be on every, you know, tennis channel every single week. I mean, it's, that's not realistic. Let's not pretend. And um, I mean, I'm, I, I think I go overboard at sometimes, you know, just saying you need to watch this all the time. You don't, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> It's fine. Um, I, I think they're they're working really hard to try to find that balance. I think what what I would like to see is a little bit more emphasis on things like okay, let's let's try to get those finals um, on a Sunday. Let's let's find a place for them a little bit more on. I don't know, bigger markets. Let's let's see if we can't work with here in the states tennis channel. Frankly, you guys, let's see if we can't figure out a way to get. Tennis one involved on those Sundays. So there's a little bit more, you know, a few more eyes on it um, in, you know, overseas, same thing. Can BBC put it on one of their, you know, online only areas? How, how can we make some of those um, outlets a little bit more engaged? And that might mean doing it for free, right? And putting it on tennis channel for free or even paying them for that service. I mean, that's realistically how it, how it gets. Um, I, I, but I can say, I think the biggest thing is really making sure that the financial, the financial side is in place. If players at who are 150 in the world um, have financial freedom and are not worried about where their next paycheck is going to come from and, and are comfortable with the idea that they're going to be making a comfortable living, I'm not talking about, you know, millionaire status, just something comfortable, they're able to play with more freedom. And that's when that's when the tennis gets really good is when you are not so desperate that you feel those nerves and that pressure of, of just like, if I don't 
win this match? How am I going to pay for my coach? Um, so that's, that's the thing. And I think the ATP, like I said, this year, there's more money going into the challengers. I don't know how that will play out. I don't know if it will be a success, but I think that's the intended goal. And I think that's going to be, um, the biggest thing for me is just making sure there's more financial freedom because then the tennis pays off. And when the tennis pays off, that's when you're going to get more eyes on the sport. Wow, what an answer, Mike. Couldn't yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> couldn't have put it any better than that. Yeah, Madison, I, I remember you, you had a question about some of the players, Mike, seeing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we were going to ask you, you know, working these challenger events and kind of seeing these players, you know, move along and go to some of these bigger ATP events. What, what are some of the players that you've seen over the years that have really stood out to you and that impressed you most? And then, of course, we'll, we'll touch on Ben Shelton in a few here, but I want to ask you that first before we get into him. Yeah, for, for me, it's it's interesting because, you know, listen, uh, you know, the, the young Americans are the ones that obviously are, are of note, right? Taylor and Tommy and Francis and, and Riley, that group um, was that, that first big push. I mean, we had, we had Nick and Tanasi Back in 2014, um, I had, I, I've told this story before, but back-to-back -back finals in two straight weeks in, in April 2014, it was first Nick Kyrgios beating Philip Krajinovic, <laughs> another guy who's like top 30. Uh, that, that was in the Sarasota Challenger. Uh, the next week, it was Nick Kyrgios beating Jack Sock in the final of the Savannah <laughs> Challenger. It's just like, wow. Holy crap. Right. I mean, we had, we had Alexander Zverev one year in Sarasota, Diego Schwartzman played in Sarasota one year. Um, for, for me, it's, um, I could, I could tell you those names, right. Of the players that, that, you know, tennis wise have, have made an impact when Yannick Sinner played Binghamton, Binghamton, New York population, like 20,000, like that's crazy to me, but he played Binghamton <laughs> and Lexington one Lexington. Um, and it was just like, yeah, obviously this guy is flipping good. He's like 20 pounds, but he's incredible for me. It's, it's, it's the people. Right. Um, and I, I it's always hard because I don't want to single out some players and then not others, but like, you know, we did the broadcast with Bjorn Fertangelo for Maddie and Sloan um, on tennis one here the other day, Bjorn has been one of those guys who I've become incredibly close with over the years, um, just because again, he's been in that 100 to 175 range for most of his career. So that impact, um, Francis, Francis was special. Francis was incredibly special mm -hmm. during those years because he is, um, what you see in terms of the, that big goofy grin and just that personality that has been there his entire career. Um, I, re I remember his first challenger was in Sarasota. God, I think it was 20, I think 2015. I'd have to go back and look, but, um, and like, he was with this, this wild coach at the time. And like, there was no real clue what he was doing on a tennis court at, at times, <laughs> but it was just like this, this kid, like this big smile and just so happy to, you know, be out there and always making jokes and, you know, obviously the one everybody talks about, obviously the, the sex sounds during a match in, in Sarasota a couple of years after that, like that's, you know, that's, that's like, we're, we're forever tied in, in that regard. But like, you know, I run into Francis this year, actually in Melbourne, um, right after he'd won the United cup. And it's just like, it's like old home week, right? Like we, we just like, we have that shared history. We know each other. Well, we know we've been kind of through the trenches a, a little bit. So um, I think one, one thing about being at that challenger level is I think players respect the fact that I have that work ethic that they do as well. Like I'm going to put in the 10 hours. Um, so Francis was really special. Um, Tommy Paul, like <laughs> I could tell you some <laughs> stories about those first few years where he was, He'll, he would say it himself, right? And so I'm not speaking out of turn when I when I say he was not professional. No. Um, he would and he was not ready for it. And and that's mm -hmm. it happens. Like players, <laughs> players mature at their own rates, right? Um, and he he was bad at times. Like just <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, again, stories that are not gonna ever be recorded, but <laughs> What was really cool is I, I remember him winning his first challenger in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, a few years ago. And it was this moment where I, I'm talking to him and he was, you know, 
on the verge of tears. And I think he did cry a little bit because of the fact that he, that history, that story of him, like taking several years to get to a point where he just won a challenger. Meanwhile, Taylor and Francis and Riley are much higher and, you know, we're, we're at ATP finals at that stage. And like, it meant so much to him to have that one title and allowed him to just feel that little bit of confidence and still have that same personality of being fun and relaxed and, and going on to these big things. And we still have those, those moments where it's just like, I, those players know that I have seen them at their worst. And so when yeah. I get to see them at their best, I mean, it means a lot. Um, so like, yeah, I could, I could sit here and list to you if we went through the ATP rankings of the top 100, I've probably seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 of them at a challenger level. Wow. But it's, it's, it's the relationships with those players that are what's going to pay off for me in terms of, you know, how, how I remember them um, much more. Like I couldn't tell you anything about Sasha Zverev's run in Sarasota 2014. I have literally no idea what happened. No clue. <laughs> But I can tell you about some of those stories with Francis a, a couple of years later because of the fact that we had a little bit more time and that personality really showed. It's, it's a great point you make about, you know, every player has a different timeline. Yep. I mean, going yeah. back to Illinois, I think about Kevin Anderson. Right. And he didn't peak in his professional career until he's in his 30s. And next thing you know, he's in major finals and like was he was top 10, right? Yes, exactly. I never, never would have thought that, especially the first couple of years. It took him time to learn who he was as a player. Um, it's it's one thing about the emotional, mental, you know, maturity, but also the playing maturity, how that how you learn your own game. Um, so yeah, you you know, Victor, Victor Estrella is a player nobody, nobody knows. Right. But he was a guy who he he cracked the top 100 for the first time, I think, at the age of 30 or 31. Um, and just like these are some like some some players it just you have your own path and you don't figure it out. If you're able to sort it out early, that's great. Um, but that's I don't know. That's what makes tennis so interesting. Right. I mean, there's a it's a very level playing field. You're, you are not given something special because of the fact that you know, your parents were X or Y, like it's a merit-based system. You yeah. get there by your own merits. Um, and that's what makes it a, a beautiful thing, right? If you succeed, you get paid off for it. So keep working hard and hopefully the reward will get there. Yeah. Jess Pagula immediately comes to mind. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I mentioned this before and I, I don't know if you guys saw as, as we're recording this, she just at least in the in the players weekly that incredible story about her mom um and her health battles over the last year and um just that reminder that we we never really know what athletes are going through um on a daily and weekly basis but i mean jess i think i think there was that general feel really early in her professional career that she was going to be given something extra and there's no doubt that the fact that there was a little bit of extra financial resource to pay for some very good coaches that certainly helps, but she also had sure. to earn it on the court, right? I mean, yes, you're able to kind of give yourself some extra resource. Sebi Korda, an, another good example of that, right? Like the fact that right. he was, they're able to provide a little extra resources, it never hurts. But ultimately you have to get it done on the court. Um, and credit to both of those two players in particular, because yeah, it could, you know, with those kind of resources, you could certainly blow off some steam and not, you, you know. be real comfy. Yeah. Um, but they, they both have earned that, that, that right to be amongst the, the best in the world. Yeah. Well, they certainly of, are. Yeah. I mean, somebody that's best in the world and somebody that you've covered and somebody that has done it earlier than some, let's talk mm -hmm. about Ben Shelton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both of you guys were at NCAAs last year and, you know, he wins the singles, Mike, you're on the challenger tour. He wins three challengers in a row, right. To, to end yeah. last year. And, and then, you know, quarterfinals at Australian open, just what, what has that been like for you? Well, first I, Madison, I want to ask you, um, I, I think you did the interview with him right after he won. Am I, am I right in saying that? I did. Yes. Tell, tell me about your interactions with him during that week when you, you know, didn't really have any history with him. And then I'll, then I'll tell you a little bit more about my experience. Yeah, so Patrick and I have talked about this before, but obviously Brian Shelton is an incredible human being. 
and the way that he, you know, helped mold Ben into the person and player that he is. I know Ben did a lot of that himself too, but it definitely stems from Brian's parenting and Ben Shelton talk about maturity, right? Like just the way that he speaks to you, he looks directly at you. He says, Madison, like he is so engaged. He gave such polished and poised answers, like even better than, you know, some of the players that we've had to talk to or gotten the chance to talk to at some of these ATP 250s or WTA 500s or whatever. He just is so mature beyond his years. And I think that translates so well into the court. So I feel so lucky to have been able to help bring coverage at that NCAAs. And I'm sure you agree, but yeah, he's just an amazing person. You hit it right on the head. The, the eye contact. Um, I, I told this story on my podcast to Ben. Um, but you know, my, my daughter, um, we took a, you know, the little family vacation, my, my daughter, Marnie and, and her mom with the three of us all went out to California in Tiburon this year. Um, and she came with me just for one day, just to kind of look at the tennis before I had to start broadcasting. And I, I had a good relationship with Ben at that point. Um, but my daughter's eight, right? So she's four foot tall, right? So, uh, Ben is clearly not, but what he did immediately was he got down on one knee so oh that he was at eye level with my daughter. And I can't say how much something like that matters. Like to to treat every person as your equal is such a great starting point. Like the tennis be damned. Like if you're able to treat every human being that you in, encounter with with that level of respect, it's it shouldn't be applauded as much as it as it is because it should be kind of a usual thing, but it's not. Um no. So, so I start with that. Um, the tennis is, is talking to some of the commentators at the Australian Open. Uh, I only got to do one of his matches. It was the one against JJ Wolf. Um, but other commentators got to do some of his other matches. And they were just astounded by the fact that this kid is probably maybe at 30% of what he's capable of right now. Maybe. I mean, there, the, the, the exciting part of that is like, there is a massive jump that is still available for him. A huge jump. Um, he's never played on clay. He's never played on grass. Like who knows what the heck is going to happen over the next few months in terms of Ben playing in Europe for the first time. No idea. That's, but that's part of what makes it so exciting in terms of the tennis, because like, you know, huge serve, he gets to that forehand incredibly well. Um, talking to Bjorn on on the broadcast on Tennis One the other day, he said that he had been um, that day actually he hit with with Ben that morning, and he was just like, "I can't I can't read the serve," uh, and I like I feel like I put a decent return in place when I get to it, and then he's there with the first forehand and it's unplayable, yeah. and and it's just like okay that's that's a starting point that is at the <laughs> highest highest possible level. Um, and so then there's still this big jump, the backhand, if he, if he gets that to be a weapon on top of the fact that it's serviceable, holy crap, he needs to serve and volley more. All of these things that I'm just saying, like he could be, he has this capability of being at the highest, highest level. Um, and, and you, you mentioned it, Madison, his dad, mom as well, um, Mm -hmm. the, the work ethic and the fact that they have instilled in him to be humble, meaning he will put yes. in the work. He'll put in the time um, to to get to that level. And I think that's really exciting to see. You know, it's not just him. We don't, you know, we're talking about Ben. There are a lot of players who are like this, but he's going to put in the time. Think about training blocks um, so that he uses them effectively. Um, he's got a great team around him. So I, I just... You know, barring injury, I, I the sky's the limit for this young man. I completely, you couldn't have said it better. And I, if I'm not mistaken, in one of his press conferences, is he he's going to finish school? Is that is that correct? He is. Yeah, he's been he's been yeah making sure that he takes some classes and stuff. You know, I uh, there were a couple. Uh, I'm I'm pretty close with Chris Eubanks. I think most people know that. But um, you know, in Charlottesville, Knoxville, they played back to back finals during those couple of weeks, and there'd be times when. The three of us would be kind of, I don't know, hanging out or something. And, you know, Ben's just like, yeah, I got to go take a test. It's just like, <laughs> what the hell? 
good. Uh, but yeah, like that's that's still part of his reality. And he's I mean, it's it's important. He knows it's important to finish that degree. Make sure it's done again. If there is something traumatic that happens, you have that degree to you fall back on. That's it. That's right. a huge thing. Yeah. Well, it just speaks to his work ethic too. It does. I mean, obviously that. And and then the fact that somebody can have never left the United States and then do what he did, it's, I mean, I that just shows like how strong he is mentally, you know, and just uh, mature because. Uh, wow. Also, I think, um, and this is one that I've, it's always really uncomfortable talking about, but like when you send kids away at the age of 13, 14, 15, away from home, they are spending I don't know, three to six months on, on some tour, you know, some uh, like junior slams, junior, or, you know, big junior events throughout the world. It is hard for them to be um, socialized in the way that I think many, many people are lucky to be socialized in a traditional high school, schooling environment, right. college, all of those kind of things. I think that that pays off if you're not, if you're able to not do that and still be at that kind of a level tennis wise is great because of the fact that, yeah, you're having normal experiences when, you know, when Madison is talking to me about the fact that, you know, Ben Shelton looks her in the eye, that's right. not something you necessarily learn when you are just going from junior event to junior event, right? Like you, you're, you're actually with your family the entire time and learning why those kind of things are important. The junior path is just a such a tricky spot because it is it is a legitimate pathway to becoming a successful professional but hopefully we start to learn that there are some different ways to do that so we're not taking kids away from home as as much as i think people end up doing well but that's that's a that's a really deep discussion to have another time <laughs> no, but i mean for a long excuse me for a long time I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm 29. For most of my life, it was always said like, ah, if you went the college route, you know, you frankly just, you weren't there, you weren't ready for the pros and all that. Um, yeah. But now yeah. I'm, I'm here in Dallas and I, I'm sending, I'm getting my interview request list ready for the ATP. Here's who I want to talk to today. And every single one of them played college tennis now. Yes. You know? I mean, it's like JJ Wool, Marcos Giron, Brandon Holt, uh, you know, all these guys. Um, Crazy. Yeah, it's it's so cool to see. And I was, I was actually talking to Brandon Holt's dad at the hotel mm -hmm. two days ago and just like how important, you know, going to college is just for your physical and, and mental maturity and, and all that. So people ask me a lot when, when I, uh, you know, how, what I advice I have for people who are 17, 18, kind of deciding what to do. I say, I, I always say, unless you are making quarterfinals of challengers on a regular basis or better, just, just go the college route because of the fact you don't, it's, you're not required to stay there for four years. If you want one or two years, right. you do that. If that, if your tennis is good enough, you know, you'll have that freedom to go. If you go to a good program, they will also help set up a system so that you can play some professional events along with the college experience. But yeah, you are, you're exactly right, Patrick. The fact that you're getting um, just normal socialization, like the, the normal, I don't know, flirting with girls at a bar, um, right. you know, like you're going to, you're having to get up at seven o'clock so that you're, you're going to class at 8am, right? I mean, those, those things humble you, um, but you also learn a lot about responsibility in the real world. Mm -hmm. Those things are all going to be helpful for you, not just the you know degree, but just learning that that responsibility, the strength and conditioning that you'll get at a, at a top level program. It's all really important. And yeah, I mean, the level is really, really good now. Um, so, yeah, you're yeah. you're if you're playing at national team indoors in a couple of weeks and you're you know top two in your lineup, you're going to be playing against guys who are immediately jumping into challengers in the next couple of years. So I think that's. That's great to see um, that it's just more and more of a, a accepted pathway to the pros. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's very, it's very cool. So I, I'm, I'm excited to see all these guys and, you know, the Diallo was playing yesterday mm -hmm. and I actually, yeah. he, he turned pro. So he yeah. like just turned pro uh, to start the year and yeah, we'll, we'll just see if this 
run of Americans, you know, former college guys just keep and Canadians. He's and a Canadian. Canadian. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Good call. Good call. You see, if you're if you go to Kentucky, they, they have like eight Canadian. I happen there to was do a my, lot. I know. I did my prep on Kentucky last night, actually, for <laughs> national team indoors. So yeah, it's like Canada, Canada, Canada. A lot of schools have pipelines, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean that's like they tell you make, their friends and oh, you should come here. And next thing you know, it's listen, man, that like everything in this sport, man, is, is all about relationships. Like the fact that you're able to say, Hey, I need a coach, like who's good. And like, find, find, uh, you know, somebody that you trust that can you look out for college. If you take one good player from a region and make them successful, then that you are set in that region for a long, long time. So yeah, relationships matter. And when we talk about, you know, this maturity aspect, right. That we've been talking about with juniors, yeah. with, with college stuff, you learn that in, in, in that college environment, you learn how to have a relationship. I know so many uh, college coaches who just say, listen, you are going to meet with our boosters. You are going to have those conversations with boosters so that you understand what it's like to ask people for things so that you, you know, have to, again, humble yourself and learn how to have those personal and professional interactions. So yeah, those, those, Again, relationships are incredibly crucial. And, you know, going back to your original question, Madison, about doing prep, right? Like yeah. the fact that I'm able to establish those relationships, it allows me to be a better broadcaster because then you have that trust. You can kind of understand what of those conversations are on the record um, and use that in your own broadcasting. And that's relationships matter. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, your, your career, you've obviously had a lot of success, um, but we wanted to know, do you have any goals for 2023 that um, you really want to see or something that you, you kind of want to do that you maybe haven't done yet? Yeah. It's, it's interesting, Madison, you, you, you asked that as I'm like going through this, uh, I don't know, midlife crisis or some, I, I don't know what to call it right now. I'm, I'm, <laughs> That's it's, not what we mean. That's not what we mean. <laughs> but you, you start to get to a point, you know, and I've, I've done this for 10 years now. Um, and I'm, I, I love what I do and, and, you know, but you also get to that point where you're just like, okay, what's the end point here at some point, you know, like uh, I do have a daughter who I love spending time with. How do I find that, that balance of professional stuff and, and also my home life that I love very much. Um, so when, when, when people ask me this, or when I've talked about this with some of my, my really close friends, like I'm starting to think about okay, more so how long I want to do this um, re realistically because mm -hmm. I, and, and which tournaments I want to do. I think what I've kind of settled on is I love challenger tennis. And if, if, if you said to me, you get to do challenger tennis and that's it for the next 10 years, done, sold. I'm, <laughs> I'm right there. Love. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I, I would, I would absolutely love the honor of broadcasting Wimbledon. I would love the honor of broadcasting at the French. I'm extraordinarily lucky that I'm doing some stuff with tennis TV. I'll, I'll see you guys in Miami in a couple of weeks. Um, and I'm going to go do the encore reporting for them in Miami and Toronto this year. My goals are very much to just continue working, being happy with that work that I get. Um, I, I know that's such a cop-out answer, Madison, because it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good question. It's a good but, answer. <laughs> um, like, I don't know. It's, it's this really weird balance right now where I'm trying to just make sure I stay doing something that I enjoy because right now we're in this industry where so much is based on clout and so much is based yeah. on, Hey, look at all these places that I'm traveling and look at me. And I, it's just not me. That's just not who I am. I like telling stories um, and I know, and maybe this is it. Maybe I'm like having a realization here, but I think the reason I like challengers so much is because when I'm broadcasting, it's none of it's about me. It's about telling the story of these players who don't ever get that story told. And so I want to do that because I don't, I don't like limelight. I don't like like even doing this podcast, you guys are very nice and very kind, but like, <laughs> I don't like talking about myself very much. Um, so if, if, if I had, if you asked me a goal, I would say just being continuing to be 
theoretically good at what I do at a challenger level, because I think that has more import. That is much more important to be able to have a person, whether it's me or somebody else who tells those stories well and puts on a good broadcast at that level. That's, that is to me what I think is the most important thing I can do. There are so many great tennis broadcasters around the world. Tennis TV doesn't need me. Tennis channel doesn't need me, but maybe challengers do. And so if I can, if I can provide that service to help those players and those tournaments get a little bit more exposure, if I can provide my services to do that, that's, I guess that's my goal. Well, we would love to see you at Wimbledon and maybe, yes. Hey, we, we would love to advocate for Mike to be Roger Federer's partner this year on the broadcast. Yeah, I'm that, sure will, that will never happen. You know, you know, what's, you know, what sucks is he is uh, of, of the big four on the men's side. He's the one I haven't interviewed. He's, ah, he's the one I've interviewed. Novak. One. I've interviewed Rafa a couple of times, Ra interviewing Rafa the first time last year in Acapulco was the most terrifying experience of my life. I'm going to, I'm sorry. Cause I know we've like almost done an hour here and I apologize. It's okay. but, uh, Tell the story. We need it. Uh, so Acapulco last year, I was very nervous. It was the first time I was working for tennis TV doing the, you know, media standard media day stuff. Right. Um, and it's Rafa and there's, uh, it was a small, small, intimate little area where there were like 30 journalists packed in and literally, and you guys, you guys can appreciate this having been around <laughs> media day scrums, right? small space of maybe 12 to 15 feet wide. And there were seven or eight TV cameras set up. So, right. Like that's two feet per camera, right? It is tight. And there's one player at a time because of noise issues. So everybody is just sitting there watching you. It, it was awful. Right. So I'm already <laughs> nervous enough because it's Rafa. It's freaking Rafa. Um, so Rafa sits down and I, I'm just like, just, just be cool. Just be cool. It's okay. It's going to be fine. Um, and I, you know, it's going fine. We have a decent interview. Um, but there was one point, like three or four minutes in, I can't remember the word, but I asked something in English and it was clear. He did not understand the word and couldn't translate it properly to Spanish so that he could give me a, a good answer. Mm -hmm. to totally normal thing. But his reaction was those in like all of a sudden those eyes flipped to player mode. And so he's like staring at me because he's clearly trying to work out what I have said. Right. So he can answer properly. But he's looking at me like I have just hit a forehand winner past him and I am the devil. And so I'm like, <laughs> I very I was nearly pooping my pants because it was just like Rafa is giving me that look and like just for that moment to be able to look into his eyes and see what that's like across the net it was just like terrifying and also just like I got it I got it for a, like one second I got the look from Rafa and I was like okay now I it, all of it makes sense like I get I got I got that so that was a that was a really cool and horrifically terrifying moment at the same time. A lot of people have interviewed Rafa, but not everybody gets to see that look. No, that's a big, that's a big deal. So, you know, that's, that's my tip. If you interview Rafa, throw in some very odd English words. So he Word. doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to experience what other players see. Exactly. It was, it was, it was very cool, terrifying and cool. Well, if you handle that well, when you do get to handle Roger Federer, uh, when you get to interview him, it'll be fine. Breeze. Yeah. It'll be a breeze. Wow. No problem. <laughs> what a chill guy. Um, Mike, I just want to, you know, you were kind of talking about, you know, you're a humble guy, right? And a lot of times this industry is about clout and all that stuff. I just want to read this off your LinkedIn because I love this. I, well, I haven't I haven't checked my LinkedIn in years. Okay, well, <laughs> go yeah, on. Let's see what it, what, it's a surprise for you then as well. But I just want to read this one paragraph. He said, I'm soft-spoken and dry, so I don't fit in with the traditional American style of hot takes and heavy criticism. Mm. I'm respectful of the players, their ups and downs, and respectful towards the game itself. I'm comfortable making criticisms of decisions made and think that I do so without disrespecting the player, which is an art that is lost in today's broadcasting world. I think this is seriously like what makes you so likable and so good at your job and, and somebody that as more and more people hear you do matches, more and more people are going to want to continue to hear you and, and tell other people in the tennis world about my Absolutely. Opinion. 
you know, I was up all hours for Australia and I, I saw all over Twitter, you know, people saying, go, go watch the world feed. Cause Mike's mm. doing it, you know, and, um, just so cool to see that. And uh, that's, that's very kind. And I, I appreciate that. That's something uh, I stand by whenever I said that several years ago, um, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it's important. Um, because again, you know, I, I think Jessica, Jessica Pagula's story this morning was, you know, another great example of that. Broadcasters should criticize decisions within a match because that's what we get paid to do. It doesn't mean you need to impugn their character. It also doesn't mean you get to put yourself and, and take any type of credit for their success. When, when somebody wins a grand slam, you don't have to post a picture you took with that player 10 years ago to show that you were there when. Um, I'm, I'm happy to tell some of those stories about my experiences with Francis, but it's his story. It's not mine. Um, and yeah, I think that's a very like old, old person, you know, like stay off my lawn kids kind of a thing nowadays, um, in influencer culture, but I don't know. I, I think, I think that matters. Um, and it might cost me jobs down the, down the line. And that's, I think that's something that, uh, I, me and my therapist will deal with. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I, I think for, for me and my health and well being mentally, I think that's really important because that's how I was taught. That's what my parents would want for me is that it's none of it is about me. I just happen to be helping tell some of those stories. And I think that's really, really important to do. Couldn't have said that better. Yeah. As a broadcaster, I completely agree with you. It's not about us. Right. It's about the players. So I think you said that. And for aspiring broadcasters listening to this podcast, take note because that's super important. Do I don't not make know if, it about yourself. I don't know, any, Madison. I don't know. Like, I don't I know like if that's, <laughs> but like you, you see it, right? Like, I mean, everybody's, yeah. God, I'm going to sound so old, but like people are on TikTok, and it's just like, okay, let's make a, let's make a 30 second hilarious video. And that's going to get billions more views than any broadcast I ever do ever. It's just a matter of like each person has to kind of come to grips with what's important to them, right? Like how, how they want to make it in this world. And I don't like, I want to make sure I don't judge people if they're just like, you know, the clout chasing, like, you know, get, get that bag. I don't give a shit. Like, excuse, you know, excuse my language, but like you do, get that you, bag. do you, you do you to, to, to get to a point where you're content. For me, I don't want that for me. I can't, I can't be that person. I can't handle a million people staring at, I can't do that. And that's, I'm happy with doing the work. Like that's, that's what gives me joy on the inside is doing the work. Kind of like what we were talking about at the outset, doing that prep. I like that. Um, so I, I hope, I hope there are people who say, I want to put in the effort and do a good broadcast more than anything else, because yeah, you're going to get a million views on TikTok. That's great. But maybe it's it's also important to do a fantastic job every single day, yeah. and I think right. I think those kind of things, that's that feels like a very old person Midwestern. My grandpa would be very happy right now. <laughs> it has to be sustainable, like you said. Correct. You, you get the quick fix on on TikTok or whatever. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have to be able to live with it every day, and Correct. it's it's not easy. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough conundrum in our industry right now. Mm -hmm. Well. You're doing a great job, Mike, and we, we really appreciate uh, you joining us today, as well as calling the match for us the other day, the yes. tennis classic here at the Dallas Open. So definitely, we're, we can't wait for our next streaming opportunity so we can. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You guys have said some very nice things, and I'm very appreciative. So yeah, I, I think you guys do a good job. I really respect how hard you guys work. I know it's not easy at times, you know, you guys having started up just a couple of years back. And like, I know that's a really difficult thing. I know I've seen both of you at a lot of events over the last couple of years. That is, yeah, it's not easy. Um, you know, when you guys are going up against Tennis Channel and all of these international broadcast outlets. Um, so the fact that you guys continue to make inroads 
is a credit to you guys and your work ethic because I know your staff is is small. Um, so yeah, well done to both of you. And I look Thank forward you. to maybe we could have a drink. Um, Madison, you're old enough to have a drink. Right? Yes. I mean, you, gosh, <laughs> bless your heart. You just make me feel like an old man. But um, I'm 25. I'm 25. Okay. Everybody. All right. All right. Like Patrick. Patrick, you know, I've grown up with his dad. <laughs> like really but, old. But, no. <laughs> uh, but maybe we can have a drink in Miami when we when we get down there. Count on it. That sounds that sounds great. So, thanks again, everyone. Madison, always been a pleasure. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again, Mike. It's yep, been of so course. awesome.